This week on According to Sources, my interview with CNBC contributor and author Ron Insana. We discuss the rise and fall for Eddie Lampert's vision for Sears Holdings. We do a deep dive into some political predictions for both 2019 and 2020. But I started the interview by asking Ron about his former employer, General Electric, and his current thoughts on the situation there. I apologize for the audio as the interview was done by phone. However, it does improve. The construction of the company's changed dramatically. The composition of its components changed. They ran into some um, problems evaluating their health care liabilities, health insurance liabilities, they have an underfunded pension. Uh, and, and they really, in the 1990s, they were firing on all cylinders. And, and these days they're firing on, you know, two out of 20 or two out of 10. And so I suspect, you know, the price reflects their fundamental prospects at the moment. And they're going to break pieces of the company off and hopefully it'll come in the way of it, like a tax-free spinoff if, if, if that's the way they go with it. And so shareholders might have some upside in the spun-off entities if, if that's the way the, they plan to restructure the company. But you know, it, it, it's a tragedy in so many different ways. I mean, when, in, in the glory days when Jack Welch and Bob Wright were running GE and NBC respectively, and they were huge champions of the, the NBC uh, products and family, like including CNBC, they knew where every penny was in that company, and they they were quite canny at how they made acquisitions, how they ran the shop, and what Wall Street was expecting of them. And I, I think that was lost with Jeff, and, and I think Jeff was not a great uh, timer when it came to buying and selling assets. There's been a lot of talk, Ron, of late about you know where do you point the finger? Clearly, John Flannery's tenure was doomed from the start, so you can't blame him. Um, so Jeff Emmel is the, you know, the easy target, but some now are saying that perhaps the blame for today's problems can actually stem all the way to Jack Welch's tenure. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that there's some truth to the, to the notion that you know, Jack, what Jack did couldn't be replicated and to a certain extent was maybe a constraint on Jeff. Now, when I first sat down to interview Jeff when he'd taken over the company, I said, why don't you break it up? because you simply can't do what Jack did, which was to roll up a whole host of acquisitions over the course of his career. He was pretty, um, I would say, focused is, is, is maybe a gentle word, but quite focused on maintaining um, very tight cost controls, but then also exploiting the lower cost of capital that GE Capital provided the firm when it was making acquisitions. So he had a, he had tailwinds at his back, um, some of which were, were structural, too, with respect to the market. When people started indexing and GE's market cap grew larger and larger, more and more index managers had to buy GE, so that was another tailwind. We always beat our earnings expectations by a penny because Jack, as he used to like to say, kept a nickel in the drawer. So if they needed to sell an asset in order to make their numbers, they did that. And so, yeah, you really couldn't replicate what Jack did in the environment in which Jack did it. And so, yes, very tough act to follow for a wide variety of reasons. And that's why I think, on the one hand, you know, Jeff told me he was not afraid of the law of large numbers, trying to grow GE past a $600 billion market cap at $200 billion in revenues, when, in fact, he probably would have been better served breaking up the constituent parts of General Electric, spinning them off to shareholders. And, you know, if one, two, or three had been big hits, he would have been a hero. Right. 
Right. In a way, I feel like the press and the media has left Jeff Immel alone too much. You know, and outside of being chairman of Athena Health, he's kept a fairly low profile. Believe me, he's not going out doing victory laps, uh, you know, with the press. And um, I suspect there might even be some hurt feelings on his part about the way the press treated him, particularly some of them who used to work for him. And so, you know, in that regard, I, I don't think he's terribly eager to get out there and, you know, rehash that. And nor would I be. And, and you know, listen, I think Flannery inherited an even worse situation in many ways than Jeff did. So Steve Tusa of J.P. Morgan has had a sell on GE since it was $29 a share and currently has a $6 target. And we've spoken in the past, you and I, about the idea of guru overshoot, the idea that a superstar analyst can be right and be right, continue to be right, gain almost like a superstar status, and then suddenly be very wrong. And we saw this during the financial crisis with Meredith Whitney. So I wonder, when an analyst gets so much attention, like Steve Tusa is getting, is it possible that that could be a sign of what you've called guru overshoot? Right. Oh, absolutely. Look at it. And, and listen, Meredith went off way over her skis on her municipal bond call, which was not her area of expertise, saying that we we're going to have a wave of defaults after during the great financial crisis at the municipal level. We had some, but it didn't cascade the way she had anticipated. We had, you know, listen, I know people who during the great financial crisis were shorting GE to zero. And, and the implications of GE going to zero during that period were that the entire world was going to come undone. And the same with, you know, betting that the banks were going to zero in 2008, 2009, assuming no Fed rescue and all these other types of things. But yeah, people get ground into their positions and then don't know when to let go. Uh, and part of that is, is, is again, you, you begin to believe your own PR and instead of, you know, being more disciplined in your approach, which is that when you've achieved 95% of your objective, You've done a great job for your clients, and it's time maybe to kind of soften it up, slow it down, not necessarily change your opinion. I mean, we don't, you know, could GE go bankrupt? It's conceivable that it could. Um, it's probably not the, the highest probability, but it's possible. Okay, I want to pivot for a second to fund managers. Now, uh, over your many years of journalism, I'm sure you've seen many of these managers coin, quote, the next Warren Buffett, Bill Ackman, Eddie Lampert. And their superstar rises and then has flamed out. So in your opinion, I wanted to know, why do you think that Warren Buffett, what is it about Warren Buffett that makes him so difficult to emulate in terms of consistency? Well, first and foremost, I think he buys businesses. I don't think he's a financial engineer. There is some financial engineering that goes on inside Berkshire Hathaway, and they have very sophisticated operations they're not just you know kind of oh we love coca-cola we're going to buy it they, they do a, a rigorous analysis they and he has for his entire life had an extremely long-term view he's also made mistakes and he's been willing to cut his losses when he's made them on uh, u.s airways way back in the day or some other companies where he's, he's taken his hits but he's he's a very patient thorough uh diligent analyst that really knows how to buy inexpensive assets and hold on to them for a long time. Now, listen, I know Eddie pretty well, and I knew Eddie through the Sears and Kmart acquisition process. And I think inherent in that bet on Sears and Kmart was that if he wasn't able to turn those companies around and modernize them, he'd be able to sell the real estate. And there was a 
what was implicit in that was a real estate put. And I think part of that, and this is a little before your time, there was a retailer on the East Coast called Alexander's that got liquidated in the 1990s. But in bankruptcy, the stock went to $48 a share because the real estate was so valuable Mm -hmm. that they sold it all off. I think Eddie had in mind, at least as a backstop, uh, the notion that with all these freestanding stores around the country, they would be uh, useful to somebody. But that play really didn't materialize because the real estate bubble burst and it delayed any ability on, on his part to, to sell off land in the way he might have otherwise done it. And it was, it really was in some ways a hopeless endeavor unless he was willing to pour the type of money into Sears and Kmart that was being poured into Amazon. Ron, as someone that's known Eddie Lambert, why do you believe he hitched his wagon so tightly to this one singular entity? I, look, I, I think he was looking for a vehicle like Berkshire Hathaway. And Berkshire Hathaway had a permanent capital vehicle in its insurance businesses, which generated an enormous amounts of excess cash that could be reinvested into other business enterprises. And I think for some reason, he thought the excess cash flow that might accrue from a combined Sears and Kmart would finance uh, intelligent acquisitions going forward. And that's clearly was a flawed assumption. Uh, A lot of folks have used insurance um, or reinsurance businesses to create captive capital, long-term investable capital that could be levered on, you know, valuable assets. And I, I don't know why he chose Sears and Kmart with respect uh, to using those as the vehicles to do that. I mean, there could have been a lot of other businesses he sought out to do that. And, and I don't know. Listen, I'm easy. He's an Ayn Rand libertarian. He has some, you know, occasionally far out ideas. He's, he's a very intelligent guy and he's, listen, he's still a billionaire even after all this. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's hard and I, you know, certainly did ask him. I mean, I think he thought he was going to be able to to lever those assets when they were combined, more efficient and more profitable. So Sears, you know, with Sears prior to filing for bankruptcy was just about the most shorted stock out there for many years. So do you believe that, you know, in his heart of hearts, he truly thought that he could turn it around or was he just holding on for dear life? I don't know. I mean, and I haven't talked to him in a while. So um, I think the last time I talked to him was about three or four years ago. And we were talking a little bit about, and this is something that they'd already considered. I called them up to talk about, you know, why didn't you just take the space and create stores within a store? Right, um, because that works so well for JCPenney, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it could have, right? I mean, if you look at the place, you know, some of the companies that went into JCPenney are now better as, as standalone entities. So, Ron, many years ago, you wrote a book. Uh, the title of the book was called Message of the Markets, and the crux of the book is that or was that there are small, perhaps less notable events that can forecast or be sort of a precursor for huge events. Uh, So, for example, there was the chapter in there about a spike in wheat prices prior to the full scope, I guess, of the Chernobyl disaster being out there in the public. Uh, There was another one about the collapse of the the currency in Thailand in the late 90s, which ended up being a prelude to the full Asian currency crisis. So, you know, I'll ask you this. Broadly speaking, do you see any message of the markets out there today um, that could forecast or be a precursor to something larger? Broadly speaking, I mean, very broadly, from a macro perspective, we've seen um, global stock markets swoon. Uh, the U.S. 
decline of late limited to kind of 10% from the major averages, but subgroups, semiconductors, oil service stocks, oil companies have been down more. 60% of the S&P or 70% of the S&P is down 10%, 34% is down more than 20%. Um, and that's here at home. Overseas markets have got hit, gotten hit even harder. Interest rates stubbornly refuse to go up, even though, for instance, the Federal Reserve is tightening and commodity prices have come down. Now, that would tell me that not only are we having a global slowdown, but we're at risk in the U.S. next year of seeing slower growth than, let's say, just about anyone else is forecasting, certainly than the White House is forecasting. I don't think we're a 3% grower next year. I think corporate profits have peaked, and I think with first, second, and third quarter profits each up more than 20% apiece in a stock market that's now, now down for the year, that is a big tell. That that comparable uh, or comparisons year over year in 2019 are going to be very difficult and that the market may have already priced in peak earnings. And I think that's an issue and probably peak growth. And uh, the tax cut, you know, seemed to pull forward demand and uh, certainly gave corporations a lot of cash to buy back stock. And even that, didn't really support the market. So that that's enough of a tell, along with a flattening yield curve, which I talk about in the book, by the way, as being a, a pretty solid predictor of recession. We're not fully inverted uh, from the 10-year note to the three-month T-bill, but it's as flat as it's been all year. It's down to 65 basis points. And that's, I think we're starting to get yellow, yellow caution signs all over the place. Right. Now, the book you wrote as a follow-up to this was called Trend Watching, which profiled infamous Wall Street bubbles throughout history, uh, I've heard you on CNBC and MSNBC. You have a fairly vocal distaste of Bitcoin, um, but I don't want to talk about that today. I did want to ask you about the idea of a possible bubble in Silicon Valley and the idea that, because um, I know you always like to look back at history as a guide, the idea that uh, if long-term capital management was perhaps a market-rattling event, could the Vision Fund uh, perhaps be a similar marker that we look back on uh, in the future? It might, yeah, and, and, and you know, but, like, to go back to 1999, when, when the internet bubble was in full swing, there were over a thousand companies that raised funds, in some cases, not only without revenues or profits, but without a product or an articulated vision. They were almost blank check companies, and the money just flowed like water. It was truly unbelievable that a company could raise $100, $200 million start advertising a product that hadn't yet been developed and get that kind of capital out of Wall Street and, 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 and Main Street for that matter because everybody was in. Now, it's a different kind of bubble. I mean, if you're talking about the FANG stocks. No, I'm talking more about the bubble in the actual venture capital world. Oh, in the, venture, in the world itself. Yeah. Yeah, I, sure. I mean, I, I think because, you know, you can only create so many unicorns, although there are some technological breakthroughs on the horizon that, that are probably going to happen at a faster clip than we've seen in the past and healthcare technology and gene editing. And, you know, yes, I think there's a bubble and I think it's made, for instance, housing prices in that region unsustainable. There's probably too much capital chasing too many few good uh, ideas. Although having said that, you know, I, I, I'm loath to call it a bubble because a bubble is, a bubble is usually defined in, 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 in very specific ways that ultimately include public participation and then exhaustion and, and then really serious resentment. We don't have that specifically in the venture capital world because it's not available to the public for all intents and purposes. But yet, yeah, do we have mispricings? Are, are things overvalued in that world? Is there too much 
venture capital money that has inflated the prices of other assets like local real estate in the valley sure absolutely well due to the fact that so many of these companies remain private now for much longer than they did in the past uber airbnb for example we just don't have that sort of transparency and i don't even know what an initial crack of a bubble would even look like you could start to see existing investors try to sell their stakes in these companies in the sec in the um, in the non-public marketplace and start dumping uh shares that they own in the private marketplace into these you know uh, quasi-public entities where people can trade away their securities. Um, you would see failures of some venture capital companies who invested uh, too much in, in too few good ideas, and that's how it would start to manifest itself. And it might even show up in falling real estate prices if people really start to blow up in the valley, and all of a sudden they have to exit you know, en masse because they can't afford their $6 million, 1,000-square-foot home you know, in Palo Alto. Right. So, you know, you have to start looking for some of those anecdotal signs that would give you an indication that that's happening. I feel like you would see this in early career choices for recent graduates, meaning like when I graduated from college in 2003, so many of my friends went directly into mortgage lending. You know, they killed it for three or four years until, of course, their firms went under or belly up. And now I feel like every college graduate is just going right into a startup. Yeah, and the, the, the interesting thing about startups um, – and yeah, look, the failure rate's always been over 90% for business startups, right? Or somewhere in that neighborhood, you know, 75 to 90%, depending on the industry you're in. So, yes, it's become kind of a, a cult where everybody thinks they're the next Zuckerberg or, or you know, the next Bezos or what have you. Um, it's probably better to do it earlier rather than later. <laughs> in the event you do blow up, you probably have a skill set that's translatable to a job. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you, said, you saw this with MBAs in the 1980s and everybody wanted to do leverage buyouts and become, uh, you know, Michael Milken or um, Ivan Boski, who was a risk arbitrageur, and they were kind of the, they were the big guys of their day, the corporate raiders in the 1980s. Then it was the internet guys, the CEOs of the 1990s. Then it was the real estate titans in the, in the 2000s. And more recently now, it's it's kind of the fan guys. Right. Um, so, yeah, you, you have these waves every decade of, of, of something new. And, yeah, I, I would argue that, you know, some of it's overdone. So, Ron, I end every interview with five questions for the guests. So here we go. Question one, and this is a three-parter. I'm going to give you an event. And I'm going to ask you to tell me the percentage likelihood of this event happening. Number one, odds Donald Trump wins the election in 2020? 75%. Odds that the United States cuts ties with Saudi Arabia in 2019? 0%. Percentage chance Elon Musk no longer holds a position with Tesla by the end of 2019? 30%. Question two, if and when they made a movie about the rise and fall of General Electric, I need you to give me a working title. Who would play Jack Welch and who would play Jeff Immelt? Let's see. I would say Lights Out Okay, uh, as a title. Uh, let's see. Who would play Jack Welch? Um, in a short, who would Irishman with a Boston accent? Um, if you could age Mark Wahlberg, he would probably be great at it. That was good. I was thinking um, Robert Duvall. Duvall, but Duvall's... I think Jack's age. So, um, Immelt? Let me see. Um, Rob Riddle. Remind me who he is again. He's a comedian. Oh, really? But he's a big, burly, yeah, guy that kind of 
looks a little bit like Jeff, a little more swarthy, but I think he can pull it off. Question three, you've interviewed countless fund managers over the years, but if you could only invest your money with one of them, who would it be? Steve Cohen. Just because of his amazing consistency? I don't know what his euro is looking like this year, but I mean, he's compounded as, as well as anybody over the course of his career and having spent time at his shop. Um, he's it, watching him trade is like watching Mozart play piano. Now, l- let me let me add that there are two other guys that I think are in many ways unimpeachable with respect to returns, and that would be Stanley Druckenmiller. And I also like Andreas Halverson at uh, Viking, who's a Tiger Cup mm-hmm. and really intellectually disciplined individual. Question four, in your many years on television, who was your favorite interview? And who was the person you always wanted to interview and never got the chance? Well, Alan Reesman would never give me the on-the-record interview. Um, I spent 10 years seeing him off the record um, for background information on the Fed, and I was the first uh, CNBCer to go in there and do that, and that was gratifying, but he was never going to go on camera, except after the great financial, or during during the, um, after 9-11, he and Jack Welch went on 60 Minutes together. Um, and that, that did not go to me. Um, and I, it's it, the favorites are hard because they're really different. I would say that because in many ways this is like, you know, falling in love. But my, my first presidential was Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. And it has to be in some ways the most exciting thing you get to do as a journalist is to do a sit down with a sitting president of the United States. It is so different than any other thing you ever do. Um, that no matter how many times you do it, it's always exciting, challenging, fraught. Um, it's uh, part of it is seeing how long you can stay <laughs> with, right. without getting cut off. Clinton as my first presidential uh, stands out as my favorite, but God, there were so many. I mean, Buffett and uh, Steve Jobs and Queen Rania and Ozzy Osbourne. I mean, you know, you might have even been there when I interviewed Ozzy Osbourne. I think I was. Uh, my favorite interview when I was there was when you spoke to the CEO of Overstock, who is still there, Patrick Byrne. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick, Patrick yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and listen, I mean, we, and I, I don't know ultimately what prompted the amount of animus between us, um, but he was at the time going off on all the short sellers. And we weren't quite sure what he was actually doing with the company. And it wasn't profitable, and it was it was it looked really like a, a disaster in the making. And shockingly, they're still around. I mean, yeah, interesting enough, his obsession with you know who was shorting his stock caused him to really get into the weeds, so to speak, about the stock loan industry. And I don't know if you've been following him, but he's created this separate entity within Overstock, which is called Medici Ventures, which aims to sort of become uh, to bring stock loan to the blockchain. Yeah, good luck. I mean, I, you know how I feel about Bitcoin. I mean, I, 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 I tend to agree with Jamie Dimon that it's a fraud. And I, I, I tend to, in the sense that what they're suggesting it's going to do as a currency is, if, number one, effectively not possible in, in a sovereign world. And, and number two, Bitcoin by itself lacks the characteristics of money uh, that have been historically uh, associated with transactional capabilities and, and storing wealth. And so blockchain may be a transformational technology, I think. And I'll be really blunt here because I've said it before, Bitcoin's bullshit. Yeah, you know, when it comes to Bitcoin, the only time I was ever really tempted to buy it was when the Wall Street Journal reported that George Soros' fund had accumulated some, you know, thinking being that 
he's the oracle of currencies. And if he's buying some, then, you know, maybe it's for real. So look, it's a rounding error for him, right? He could put a billion dollars into Bitcoin and it wouldn't make a difference to his net worth. Yeah, but I guess it shows he doesn't think it's complete bullshit. Or he thinks it's maybe he's like, okay, I don't fully get it. Um, I'm going to take a flyer on this with a small piece. And if, you know, if this small piece, if, every, if everything goes right, it'll make me yet another fortune. If, if, you know, if I get stopped out, so what? Okay, last question. Most likely Democrat to oppose Trump in 2020. Give me your favorite and then give me a dark horse candidate that someone might not be looking out for. My favorite, I think, at the end of the day is Howard Schultz. It's between Howard Schultz and Michael Bloomberg. You actually um, think Bloomberg might make a real run at this? I, I don't, but I, I think he would be my he would he would be my all time favorite. Howard Schultz would be a close second. Um, the dark, listen, I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to run. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's going to run. I don't think she should. Um, we're going to have twenty people in the field. Biden may very well run. Like him, but uh, he's going to be seventy eight years old. Um, don't hold that against him, but it's a tough job. Uh, I think the um, the big. I mean, Kamala Harris is going to run. Cory Booker is going to run. Kristen Gillibrand is going to run. William Castro is going to run. Um, I, I don't. You know, I, I think Beto O'Rourke is 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 the dark horse that everybody's pinning their hopes on. Mm-hmm. I I would bet he doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of winning the presidency. Not now. Maybe later. I don't think you can replicate that Obama moment when you, or even in certain, a certain sense, the Clinton moment where you come from nowhere, come from behind, and, and then really steal the show. Uh, I think it's going to be too competitive. The real dark horse is Hillary. You you think there's a, a chance she does it again? Well, Mark Penn, her, her former campaign manager, says she's going to do it in Hillary 4.0 style. I don't know. Um, it would be maybe the best rematch since Rocky and Apollo Creed. Um, it would be epic in a certain sense. I mean, does her own party want her to run? Not necessarily. But, you know, as you as this stuff gets more serious and you have to field a candidate that's not going to get smoked by someone like Donald Trump who managed to smoke her, which is no mean feat. Um, yeah, he, look what he did to a field of 17 Republicans, several of whom were truly legitimate candidates. Mm-hmm. Jeb Bush had $130 million going in, and it was gone before he even hit the ground. <laughs> and then he was one of the first out. I mean, it was insane how the dominoes fell. So I think that in a certain sense, yeah, I don't think the Democratic Party wants to see it. I don't think the progressives want to see it. Um, I also don't think a progressive candidate can beat Donald Trump. Um, so whether it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or, um, and Kamala Harris could be interesting, but, but I think the real, the true dark horse is that Hillary comes back and goes all in and says, listen, this was an entirely illegitimate election. You know, after Mueller comes out with whatever he finds and said, you know what, it's time to go again. That would be fascinating to me. Ron, thanks so much again for coming on today. Hey, it was a pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And good luck with everything you're doing. My thanks again to CNBC contributor and author Ron Insana. You know, I first met Ron in the CNBC cafeteria in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, 
over 15 years ago. Um, I was 22 years old. I was right out of school with a journalism degree. I had been working on the show Closing Bell with Maria Bartiromo for a few weeks, and I asked if I could be transferred over to Ron's show, Street Signs, which aired at 2 p.m. every day. And it ended up being one of the greatest decisions that I ever made. Uh, only four or five people would put out that entire hour of television each week. It was Ron, myself, Denise Rarig, who now is the executive producer of Late Night with Stephen Colbert, and Margaret Brennan, who is the host of Face the Nation on CBS, also does work on 60 Minutes as well. It was just uh, an unbelievable experience with some incredibly talented people. Uh, the odds of being uh, in such a small, confined space with that many people who went on to do such great things uh, was amazing. And Ron is not only one of the smartest people I've ever met, but also one of the nicest and the most likable. So thank you again. That will do it for According to Sources for the first week of December 2018. And I will see you next week.